Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor-Whiteway. This week, we carry on our discussion with Nick Hooper and Duncan Gillard, who led the team in the development of the Connect curriculum. This week, we talk about the importance and barriers of applying evidence-based practice in schools and exploring the impact of the Connect curriculum. So Nick and Duncan, this week we're going to carry on our conversation and spend some time talking about evidence-based practice in education, which is very close to me as the idea behind this podcast of bringing evidence-based practice into schools. And I know it's been really important to you in the development of the Connect curriculum. And so for me, it feels like right now is very timely for this. There's a real shift towards noticing and acknowledging mental health and emotional well-being in our young people and in our schools and so did it feel like the right kind of time to develop this curriculum for you? I think you're absolutely right about the time Sarah. If you think about for example the um, the current SEN code of practice that we're working to where you've got one of the primary areas of educational need being the social being described as social emotional and mental health and then we think about the 2017 December 2017 um, uh, government green paper around children's uh, mental health being, in my view, schools, schools and more schools, like, I mean, there's just nothing in there that isn't about schools being at the centre of the government strategy for promoting children's well-being. Um, and then you've got, and often these links are not well made, I think, so far, not explicitly from what I can see anyway, you've got the, the upcoming changes in PSHE um, uh, statutes. And if you look at the government guidance on personal, social and health education from September 2020, so many of the outcomes that schools at the primary phase have to work toward are around relationships, so social and emotional well-being, clearly, but certainly social, relationships, social, uh, and mental health. It's, it, it's, it's right in there. I find it fascinating, actually, that I'm not seeing, too, I'm not seeing the government um, link the, the green paper guidance that came out in 2017 that will probably become a white paper eventually with the changes in PSHE statute, because in my view, they're... they're they're very complementary and should be being talked about as being two sides of the same coin, really. And so with that in mind, do you feel that teacher training schemes should have more of a focus on well-being? It would be a huge undertaking to incorporate well-being training as part of teacher training because it would require the decision makers of that particular training to choose how to teach well-being and what to teach within their well-being frameworks. And so it sort of makes sense that that um, well-being would be almost like a CPD thing that would happen that would happen in schools, and it's a really interesting question actually because it's not just teachers; it's every occupation. As in, you're essentially asking me: should te- should should teachers have uh, you know a better understanding of well-being by the time they reach the workplace? Yeah, well, everybody should. Everybody should have a better understanding of well-being. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That then leads us to question how can we expect teachers to have the skills and the knowledge and the confidence to go forward and put in evidence-based practice around mental health and emotional well-being when it's not something that's kind of focused on for their training? It's something that 
we've discussed slightly, which is schools are being seen as a vehicle for the delivery of mental health interventions. Now, you could well have teachers listening to this thinking, I'm not a mental health practitioner. That's not my job. My job isn't to be a mental, to be an interventionist with regards to, to mental health. Um, and so, like, you know, in response to that, you know, we would say, well, you, you sort of are already, you know, whether, whether you know it or not, you're like you see children every day and you're constantly shaping them uh, with regards to their, to their inner worlds and stuff. And we just want to give you a language to be able to do that a little bit better. Um, but the, the other thing that we'd say is that the other like bit of information that it gave us was you're not mental health practitioners. So like our connect curriculum has to make this as easy as possible for you to be able to do something that's still meaningful. So it's a really delicate balance mm. of doing something that isn't going to require too much from the teachers, but is still going to be meaningful enough to impact the, the, mm. the children in a positive way. Yes. And I know you've worked really hard to make sure that connect is really ingrained in and built from the evidence. And Duncan, I've heard you speak about how sometimes there's a barrier for schools putting in evidence-based practice, or perhaps that we don't see that much evidence-based practice in schools in the UK. So what do you think the barriers are to schools putting in this kind of wealth of education evidence we have out there into practice in their schools? I think, you know, time is a significant factor for sure. You know, I mean, we, we I know teachers that are not even on leadership grades, but still work 55, 60 hours a week just trying to do the day job. So to be able to do thorough kind of evidence reviews to make sense of um, complex empirical kind of terrain on top of that, like it's just not feasible. Another thing, and this really does great on me if I'm honest, um, is that there are packages out there that look wonderful, like really, really attractive, right? You kind of go onto the website, it's like, wow, this looks amazing. Look how aesthetically beautiful it is. and. Um, uh, it, it looks easy to do, it looks attractive, it's aesthetic. Um, oh, you just kind of punch in this information and out comes an intervention, bang, you know. I think sometimes if something looks too good to be true, maybe it is too good to be true. Um, uh, and, I, you know, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I do know of a number of programmes out there that have th really thrived in our educational context with absolutely no evidence base. And it's not just, it's not like that they're new programmes either. They're pro some of these things that I'm thinking of, and I won't mention any names, have been out there for years, sometimes way more than a decade. And they're, they're still getting used in schools and they have no, no credible evidence base after over a decade of implementation. Like, wow. Um, but of course they're easy to use. Like a head teacher once said to me, I was having a conversation with him about this uh, particular program that he'd invested a huge amount of money, time and resources in making a systems-wide approach. Um, and uh, when I said to him in a kind of planning meeting, hey, you know, that's got no evidence base, right? Like th there's been a recent meta-analysis or sort of recent evidence review and not a shred of cred credible evidence around this particular approach has been shown. In it. And this particular approach has been going on for, um, in its original inception, up to 18 years. 18 years, not a shred of credible evidence. And I said, go and have a look at this and gave him uh, some of the public health uh, guidelines around, you know, whole school approaches to psychological well-being, futures in mind, Catherine Weir's documents, he said, have a read of this stuff and let's have another conversation. And he came back and he said, it all looks really good. But you know what, Duncan, it's not Ron Seal. I can't just slap it on and uh, it looks really complicated to use and how on earth am I gonna skill up my teachers to be able to do this? And so what, you know, and, and I've got a lot of respect for this particular head teacher, and, but I did go away thinking, God, that's so frustrating. It's so difficult. 
Um, but it, but once I kind of got over the frustration of it, I realized, hey, he's communicating a genuine need. And that need is feasibility. We need to implement things that are feasible and doable and workable, not just things that the evidence suggests should work. What we've tried to do to hang on this Ron Seal metaphor is we try to create um, a high quality paint that lasts forever. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like something that you can do relatively easily and it really does have a kick to it. And you have worked really hard to make sure it is just that um, impactful and evidence-based and hopefully something that teachers will feel confident putting in place. I think it all comes down to, to time. Um, you know, as in if, if teachers aren't going to have the time to be able to scour the evidence base for the, for, the, for the best approaches, then what they do is they defer to the authority of experts. And, and of course, like anybody can appear to be an expert. And there's like a whole bunch of like really interesting literature about it's the appearance of authority that matters rather than the substance of authority. And so if you can appear to be an authority and you've also got like a great branding package and you've got something that looks great, then of course it becomes something that you can sell. And so I would say to teachers and to head teachers, if you're at the point at which you're thinking of, of buying something, go and look at the evidence base because the evidence base trumps everything. And so because of the time issue, we find ourselves in a, in a position where uh, teachers and, and head teachers in schools, they, they solve the time problem by giving teachers something that's easy to deliver. And so now the teachers are less stressed because they've got something to deliver. But like those things might not work. Mm. So now what we've got is stuff in schools that doesn't work, doesn't mm. make any difference to well-being, but mm. it's easy to deliver. And so no teacher out there worth their salt is going to be thinking, yeah, do you know, what? I'm happy to deliver something that's easy to deliver, even if it's not working. No teacher's going to think that. Mm. And so we, we, we really have to think more carefully about getting a balance between something that's relatively easy to, to deliver, but also effective and also evidence-based and also nicely packaged and so that's essentially sort of like the the, the things that we're going for with uh, with connect and no small task at all and we've spoken a lot in the previous episode about the evidence base on which it's built and there is a vast array of that but what about the impact of it have you been able to measure the impact of the connect curriculum you know we've got 10 research schools working with us at the moment um kind of uh, and we've got a research agreement with them whereby um we give them kind of additional support and they get the kind of curriculum entirely for free and we we get to kind of you know we get to use some of their data some of their outcome data and that's the kind of kind of relationship we've um, struck with these 10 research schools which is a, is a great way of doing you know research into practice um, but one of the questions we're really interested in is whether or not a proactive, preventative, evidence-informed wellbeing curriculum like Connect can reduce recourse for more children to targeted and uh, uh, specialist provisions. In other words, if you've got a really evidence-based wellbeing curriculum that's universally applied, do fewer children require kind of wave two and wave three targeted and specialist mental health support? We hope that's the case, but that's one of our research questions. Within each, within each half term, uh, students more or less will receive a lesson on the discoverer, a lesson on the noticer, a lesson on the advisor, a lesson on values. But each term also has a theme, and our themes are derived from the six ways to well-being. Mm. And, uh, and specifically, um, some work coming from Australia by uh, Dr. Gitanjali Barsakod 
um, suggested that psychologically healthy human beings, they tend to do six things. So they tend to exercise, they tend to self-care, they tend to challenge themselves, they tend to give to others, they tend to embrace the moment. And one more. Take notice. Our themes draw explicitly on those behaviours. So like in some ways, the point of the Connect curriculum is to give children the skills to manage their unwanted thoughts and feelings so that they can, so they can move towards those six well-being behaviours. And so that when we're talking about the evidence base, the principles of psychological flexibility that underpin DNAV have been researched for 20 years or, 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 or whatnot. And I've got a load of stuff showing that they work, um, showing that like targeting that process matters, but also the six ways to well-being. Like um, Geet, who's a former student of mine, ran massive research trials showing these six behaviors, they matter for human beings. Let's get more people doing these six behaviors. And that's why our themes are, de are derived from from uh, from them now like going back to your question about about like the connect curriculum now the connect curriculum was built from the evidence base it was built from the psychological flexibility evidence base and the six ways to well-being uh, evidence base but of course once you've built something from a, from an evidence base what you've got is a technology and then what you need to do is you need to make sure the technology works and so of course like we're really we're really new into this into this like connect like test and connect and like Duncan said we've got 10 schools from September who are going to be uh, you know measuring various various impacts and you have started some very preliminary work looking at applying DNAV in the classroom yeah so a few years ago when we began uh, connect we recruited a PhD student uh, called Emily Searle and the point of Emily's thesis was to first of all to see how possible it was to situate well-being within a PSAG curriculum just generally, like, is that a good place to put to put well-being? How feasible is it to, to do that? But secondly, her um, and like her, her research was to to see how acceptable DNAV was, to see whether children and teachers get get on with the model. And so Emily's PhD research involved developing a version of Connect for a year for a year five class, and uh, Emily measured. Uh, children's well-being, psychological flexibility, pro-social behavior, and friendship networks. Now, those last two are really interesting because you want to know whether that well-being interacts with how many friends people have got and how much pro-social behavior that, that they do. And she measured uh, uh, those things across four time points from the beginning of the academic year to the end of the academic year. And then after that, she also uh, interviewed children and interviewed teachers to get a gist of like how they found, uh, you know, delivering DNAV uh, to their year five children. Now, this is sort of a watch this space scenario because Emily's just about to collect the last data points for their quantitative data. But the some of the interviews that she did with children, with teachers are just really, really positive. And now from uh, September, the idea is, is to test actually the Connect technology in, um, in more detail. But of course, it's such a, a massive undertaking because it's, it's a seven-year intervention. So there's 250 lesson plans to be delivered across seven years. Like to run a research project like that is going to take like such a lot of time, but we're absolutely committed to doing so. We're, uh, in having that, even after seven years, right? You want them to do well in secondary school. You want kids who receive Connect to do well getting jobs later on. So like it's a massive undertaking. But what we know is that Connect is built from the evidence base and that we're committed to continuing to evaluate and improve what we uh, what we have. Yeah. 
I, don't, I, I, I struggle to see how you could develop a curriculum that's more evidence-informed than Connect. I mean, we, th that was our premise, right? We, don't, we want the absolute best evidence-informing our, our curriculum. So we know it's based on really good information about evidence based around human psychological well-being, but it's, it's, it's a relatively new product. We're committed to science and we're committed to the evidence because we believe that that is the best way to affect change in a positive way. So a really exciting time for you where you're really committed to finding out the impact of the work that you've done. So Nick and Duncan, thank you once again for talking about your work and thank you for listening. You'll find more information about the Connect curriculum in the podcast description. And if you like this episode, then please do subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum and you can email us on theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.